0: On this episode of the Millennial Book Club, Nathan and I ventured back in the golden era of rock and roll and watched a documentary about Leonard Skinner. It was called If I Leave Here Tomorrow, and it is on Showtime. And if you don't have Showtime, do not fret, because that's what this podcast is for. It's for you to save some time on watching it. And if you do like the podcast and the gist of it, then go ahead and get your Showtime account logged up and start watching it uh but without further ado we're gonna start with the greatest greatest leonard's video song of all time all right here we go Two, three. Hello, people, and welcome to the very first episode of many hundreds, possibly bold prediction, of the Millennial Book Club. I'm joined here with a good friend and a good colleague of over 16 years, possibly, Nathaniel Witte. Millennial Book Club, we will be talking about documentaries that we've watched, uh, giving our thoughts about it, uh, giving uh, giving, giving some takes.
1: Nathan, why don't you uh, kick, out, kick us off? Yeah, hey guys. Uh, we got a good show for you today. Uh, this week we watched uh, If I Leave Here Tomorrow uh, about uh, Leonard Skinner. They, uh, whether you know them from Sweet Home Alabama or from uh, playing Guitar Hero and trying to pass Freebird on Expert, uh, pretty much everyone has at least heard uh, one or two songs uh, from Leonard Skinner. And I think it was. Uh,
0: it was a fascinating documentary don't you think Alex? It was and you know I just like to uh, clear the air here, nobody has ever passed Freebird on Expert <laughs> in Guitar Hero so and if you have, uh, just feel free to shoot me an email and I'll reject it because I know it's not true. Uh, but just to start off with, what we what we thought we knew about Leonard Skinner before watching the documentary, uh, for myself I knew, uh, I mean there are three or four most popular songs right? I mean Sweet Home Alabama, Freebird, uh, Simple Man. Uh, honestly, those are the the three that I I knew right off the bat, and it's almost like everybody knows the tune of "Sweet Home Alabama," even if I don't know who Leonard
1: Skinner was. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's uh, yeah, and I, th- I think it's interesting that you say that because you know, for me, I I had just heard of uh, you know some of the songs of theirs, but the, the other thing that I I knew was the plane crash. You know? Yeah. I, I knew how the story ended basically, but I didn't really know anything about the middle ground or anything about the band personally. I just knew their music and that some of them died in the plane crash. So that right. was what I that's what I knew going into it.
0: Yeah. And a few other things is I knew that they had a, I mean they were a very large band. They weren't there wasn't one guy. It wasn't two or three guys. It was about six or seven of them. Mm-hmm. And you don't see that very much anymore. No. Matter of fact, you probably never see that anymore. Um, but, but back to that plane crash, I I did also know about that. But I what I knew about it was probably different than everybody else. I have a friend from college who loves Leonard Skinner, knows all of their songs, everything. And he had told me that the plane crash uh, was this huge conspiracy theory that the government uh, wasn't liking what what the content and, and what the lyrics that they were, were producing and, and what they were doing to their fans and, and at their concerts and everything so uh, what rubbed off on me I thought that the playing a huge conspiracy yeah. and I still believe it to this day yeah it's, it's, it's quite the incredible so I, I figured this documentary was going to have a lot of uh, conspiracy theories tied into it were you disappointed? We'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> um, what a teaser. We're so good I know, at honestly. So, 100% Around Tomatoes. It's only been out for about a year, March 13th, 2018. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before. There was, I don't think there's any any type of uh, promotion or I mean, I didn't say anything. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not huge into documentary promotions. Yeah. But I didn't say anything about it.
1: I it was, mean, it, it, I think it's one of those things, too, where it's. Kind of it flies under the radar, mm-hmm. but I think it's surprising because once you once you watch it, it's a high quality film, and it's you yeah. think considering how and and you'll touch a little bit on the director of it, but the the director has done work like this before. It's clearly a well made documentary. You'd think they would spend a little on uh, the promotion for it. Right, Showtime. It was on Showtime. Uh,
0: Steven... Kijak was the director's name, uh, and like you said, he's done a few other documentaries of bands, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Backstreet Boys, um, a couple other people that I had not heard of. Uh, but so it, it's it's cool to, to know that some a director of his stature uh, and his background would make a documentary like this because at that point uh, you don't want to judge a, a movie by its director, but it's- but, <laughs> thanks, but uh, you can kind of expect that this is, it's going to be good. It's going to be well made. He knows what he's going to do. Um, but yeah, what did what did you think about that whole uh, having a super professional director uh, from that background?
1: Yeah, I think you know it's interesting that he has directed you know documentaries for musicians, um, and it would be really interesting to look at those documentaries as well to see what elements are similar and different mm. um, because. I think some common themes among you know, all musicians is you know who they are before they they become big, who they are after you know if their personalities change and they're basically capturing all the turmoil[s] And I feel like obviously the, the bands you mentioned not similar at all. You know, Backstreet nope. you know, Boys, <laughs> Rolling Stones, and Leonard Skinner. And the Rolling Stones
0: actually do play a little part in this
1: documentary. They do, they do. But For I don't, the I don't think reasons. the Backstreet Boys are uh, are in this one uh, unless I missed it. But, uh, you know, even though they're so different, I'm sure there are some common threads amongst all musicians and bands that... Did I say uh, Backstreet Boys?
0: Yeah. I meant the Beach Boys.
1: Oh, the Beach Boys. Yeah. A lot of bees, a lot of boys. <laughs> a lot of beaches, a lot of, I meant, a I lot meant, of Backstreet Boys. I, uh, I meant Beach Boys. Well, also, the Beach Boys are different than uh, Leonard Skinner, So I, I think it's interesting to see kind of some... Common threads amongst all the bands seeing how he drew on his past experiences to make this film would be kind of interesting to look at. Agreed? Agreed?
0: Taking a quick break to talk about our sponsors. Insert sponsor here. We're not sponsored yet. We will be one day, though. I'm hoping. Because that'd be cool to just do this full time. um Yeah, if any cool company is interested in sponsoring us anything that would be interesting i would love to insert here uh promote um through social media all that stuff Uh, so back to the pod Okay, and we're back, and let's do a quick run-through of the band members, as there was about uh, 1,600 of them. Not um, to keep track. Really, honestly. So, Dean Kilpatrick was the tour manager. Uh, he kind of wore all of the hats. He was known as the big brother, kind of washed over everything. Uh, There's a cool story about him later. Um, the main singer uh, and, and sort of the catalyst of this documentary and uh, arc of the story is Ronnie Van Zandt. Um, and he's known as the Mississippi Kid for some reason. Yeah, he's not from Mississippi. Not from Mississippi either, so that was a little bit odd. He's the face uh, of, of him. The he was. Of. Everybody loves him very much, uh, including myself. And Gary Rosingston was the main guitarist, and he was also the main uh, interview interviewee during the documentary. And he kind of led us through the journey. He did, yes. He, he held our hand through the whole through the whole process. Uh, he had one really good quote I want to mention here. Uh, in the very beginning of the documentary, he... Uh, they go back to their hometown and the camera pans to him and he just goes, I miss the Moss. I love Moss. And to me, that was just like, you really can't make this stuff up. No, no. These guys are... That's still, not scripted. No. No What The director, Steven, is not telling... Gary to be like hey man don't forget to mention how much you love the boss alright right. Um, and then there is Bob Burns who was the first drummer um, and actually on a tour they saw The Exorcist because one of their shows got cancelled and things went very very south for Bob Burns um, possessed by a devil and he he, ended he, up he
1: saw The Exorcist and then he went crazy
0: yeah pretty much yeah that's a good way to put it uh, Alan Collins was the f- first and main guitar player and he was about 17 or 18 at the time he started uh, playing these infamous uh, solos of Freebirds you know Alabama all these other crazy solos and it was just unheard of that someone that young was being was that yep. good yep. and then there was Larry Junstrom, who was the first bass uh, guitar player but he left after about a year of touring because he was broke, hungry poor uh, tired every excuse in the book Nathan, he thought of it he, he got the ball rolling and then he left before
1: it got any steam. <laughs> exactly
0: and a guy named Leon uh, came in and there's a funny story about him he they were staying at a hotel and he the people had to take off their shoes before they got in the hotel and he would, and
1: he went and he pooped in someone's shoe and the whole hotel was a huge zoo after that. Not, not, not someone zoo who was a member of the band, just a random resident yes. of the hotel zoo. Yes, yeah. yes. And then there was Ed King, who
0: uh, came up with the unforgettable Sweet Home Alabama tune. And he came in a couple years after they started touring. Uh, he actually had toured with the Beach Boys for a while. Uh, he's kind of the odd man out uh, I I, I kind of thought of him as uh, if you go to someone's house and you see a a piece of art and you're like that doesn't make any sense but I like it and it looks good there that's exactly what I thought. Ed King was. He was almost like the
1: foil characters to everybody else in the band. You know, he was. He was. You know, he got all these southern boys, and then he's the West Coast kid that was touring with the Beach Boys and more proper. And the only, the only thing that made sense with him being in the band was how good he was at playing guitar. Like it, that was the yeah. only. Like that was the only thing he had in common with everyone.
0: Literally nothing else. Yeah, absolutely nothing else. Uh, then there was Billy Powell, who. Has a quite the interesting uh, run into the group. He, he, they call him a groupie uh, so he would take care of a lot of their equipment uh, and then all of a sudden he was like hey guys I actually can play the piano and he started playing and they loved him and they brought him on as a full-time piano player and he uh, is the Beethoven of our generation. <laughs> Uh, he wrote the Freebird piano solo at the very beginning, which everybody knows. Uh, and if you don't, you can hit pause and you can uh, get off this podcast. Um, and then there was Artemis Pyle, who was the second drummer after Bob Burns, the guy who got possessed by a devil. And Artemis Pyle was an ex-Marine, so he was a grade-A badass. And um, there's one quote he had that was that kind of ties into to the theme of this, and it is... Uh, if you do something every day, you're going to get good at it. Yep. And and he him and Gary Rosingston were the were the main two guys who kind of walked us through this journey of Leonard Skinner. And that quote from him stood out the most. Um I just want to kinda of know your thoughts
1: on, on just the group here real quick. Yeah, it's uh so I hope you guys were writing all that stuff down because it's pretty hard to keep track of all of it. But, you know, it's a huge group. And not only were there a lot of members going in and out of the group, but also just as a whole at any given time, there was, what, eight members, six to eight members in the group. So one of the things that um, became evident quick if you're going to have a group that large is that you all need to be on the same page and that page was whatever page ronnie van zandt was on because it was uh, and that was whatever language ronnie was speaking at the time (laughs) he uh he quickly took control of the group you know he was the alpha of the group he had created it and it was you know he was the leader it was his way or the highway and so with his kind of firm leadership and his uh it created some points of contention especially among all members of the band especially if you know four of them want to do this and three want to do that or uh, in terms of direction it, it created some points of contention and uh, they it kind of all came together for them and one of the themes that the first thing that we want to talk about with this documentary is the theme of how defiant they were and how um, you know it, it was spearheaded by Ronnie and how he it was his way on the highway that I think we can start right at the beginning talking about their uh, why they named themselves Leonard Skinner. Yeah, uh, and, and first I like to mention
0: there can only be one alpha dog, and Ronnie made it very clear uh, and quick that he was the alpha dog. Yeah. Uh, at the time, very beginning and throughout the whole rest of the journey. Um, but yeah, so they started with their name, and their name was the One Percent. First of all, super sick name. Yeah. I liked it a lot um, because they considered themselves. Uh, the best 1%. Yeah. And uh, at the time they probably were the best 1% and they didn't even know it. But they decided to change their name because they had a gym teacher named Leonard Skinner and this gym teacher uh, was telling them that they had to cut their hair. If they wanted to play sports, they all played sports. Uh, so they were like, if you want to play sports uh, you got to cut your hair. And they were like hold up, hold up. You tell me what to do? That doesn't make any sense. Actually, you know what we're going to do? We're going to quit all of your
1: sports and we're going to start a band and we're going to name it after you. Yeah. So they basically – some – the gym teacher tried to tell them what to do. They didn't like being told what to do. So they quit, (laughs) named their band after him and then got super famous basically out of spite. Out of spite because he tried to change them and tell them what to do. Yeah. And and I feel like that is first of all just a great – The fact that they're named after him is so great because they're – this idea of defiance and being told what to do and then ignoring it. It's so funny. Is a theme throughout the entire documentary and throughout their whole careers basically.
0: Just – hey, whoever's listening to this, just – think of your gym teacher's name, right? Everyone has that gym teacher that was a a washed-up athlete, high school athlete that uh, didn't make it big because he tore his ACL in eighth grade. Um. Think of their name and put a little twist into it, and uh, make a band name after it. Yeah. because it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and then jumping off of, of the, that defiance, another another story uh, comes to mind with the Rolling Stones like uh-huh. I mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, they had uh, they they opened for the, at this point. Uh, Leonard Skinner is not the Leonard Skinner that we know, or not the the famous Leonard Skinner. They are they're still they've got good songs and they've got a Mm -hmm. following but they're opening they're they're opening for the Rolling Stones
0: they also opened for the Who
1: the Who yeah yeah, yeah. and they um, so I mean these are big names but still they're not you know they're not headlining they're they're, uh, opening for them so if if, you know the Rolling Stones they've got their famous logo of the mouth with the tongue out of it and they had a, uh, a stage that was built after that logo so they had the main stage and then a tongue sticking out of it and uh, that you could walk on. And the Rolling Stones said, okay, hey, you guys, when you're opening, you can do whatever you want. Just don't go onto the tongue. And how good of an idea was it, Alex, to, it was tell, like they're to telling tell them, them not to, to, to cut their hair? To tell them don't go on that oh, because geez. what did they
0: end up doing? Ronnie Van Zandt went out there and pushed Alan Collins, the guitarist, and Leon and uh, Gary Rosings. And he pushed them right out onto the middle of the tongue. He forced them. And yeah. they played Freebird solo. And I had chills down my spine the entire time, and I was jumping across <laughs> my room because it was like the most hype thing I've seen in a '70s rock band with terrible footage. <laughs> it was so
1: amazing. And um, it's just so symbolic of what they're all about. They're, they're all about being themselves and ignoring rules and going out of their way to break rules. That's it's just it's, it's just classic. Any constraint you could put on them, they would do everything they could to to break it. They made sure it was it was their way. Yeah.
0: So every few breaks, we'll just uh, tell a little joke here because I think it'd be hilarious if everybody around you looked at you when you laughed and giggled and chuckled. They'd be like, oh, wow, what's so funny? And you'd say, oh, wow, it's just an amazing podcast, Millennial Book Club. We just learned so much and it's hilarious and these guys are the best and uh, the end. So here's a pun, a play on words, and a limerick, walk into a bar. No joke. (laughs) <laughs> gotcha. All right, back to the pod. So one way, uh, just to to tie back into the whole theme of, of defiance, doing it our way, and and making sure that uh, nobody really gets in gets in our way, uh, they had sort of a routine. I mean, it, it was almost like a it was almost like a nine to five job. Uh, they it's it's a crazy story. So they're from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, they. Their, their tour manager bought them a house and it was called the Hell House because it was this little tiny red shack uh, in the middle of a swamp swamp area and no air conditioning no furniture no nothing they just bought it uh, they put a ton of ton of equipment in it and that's where they would go play and they would they would get up at the crack of dawn 7am uh, Gary I remember Gary said 7am and they would just brainstorm and play and that is Absolutely
1: incredible that a band would do that without having any huge paychecks at the end of, of the day like that. No, no, they had, yeah, they basically took a huge risk on themselves at that point. They didn't know right. what they were going to become.
0: Yeah, and, and so it's cool because the Hell House would start uh, every morning. They they would, and this was their first couple albums, I think first two or three albums, they would record it in the Hell House and then they would go to a studio and then record it there. So they would do no prep in the studio and they would come fully prepared and it was legitimately a studio producer's dream. Yeah. They yeah. would have to do anything. They would literally have to just hit play, record, listen to them, and then that's it. Yep. Maybe a few editing here and there, a few tune-ups, but they wouldn't have to change anything throughout the, throughout the songs. They would just let them do their thing. Yeah. Yep. And, and the person that uh, sort of discovered them and gave them uh, a shot... Uh, Was a guy by the name of Al Cooper, and he created a a record label called called Sounds of the South. And at the time, the only people that were signed to it were Leonard Skinner. Yeah,
1: he made it with them in mind.
0: He did, and it was, it was crazy because uh, Al Cooper had mentioned that Leonard Skinner would make albums, not singles. Yeah. So everything was was made for a purpose and put in its place. Uh, and Ronnie had a pretty cool quote in the documentary. And he said, um, we write it really simple so that more people will understand it. Uh, we're nothing but street people singing for everyone. Yep. And it, that, that is literally the most basic, minimalistic statement ever. And it makes so much sense. And it was kind of uh,
1: another theme of the documentary, I think, is that how simple they were and how relatable they were you know and yeah. how mm-hmm. how their humble beginnings and how they never well we'll talk about how they kind of evolved from there but you know they always had these roots that they stuck with
0: yeah definitely and uh just the fact that people i mean they, they recorded for other studios other record labels and people were passing them up left and right i think it was yeah. nine or ten studios passed up on while it. they had Freebird. I mean it was the, it was the album yeah with freebird and uh, the guys were like no this isn't a, this isn't a hit yeah no. and Al Cooper uh, there's there's a story of Al Cooper who was
1: recording or well I mean you you can tell yeah he was yeah he, they were uh, he was helping them record their album and he was giving them a little too much feedback so going back to the first theme of trying to tell them what to do so then uh, Ronnie Basically, let him out to his car, locked him into his own car, yeah. and uh, said, "We'll come back when it's done." And yeah. uh, that was sure all
0: they. Me. They came out with "Simple Man," yeah. <laughs> uh, which is one of the one of the top five most uh, most played songs. Um, but yeah, they were getting to the point where they became super popular, and uh, Al Cooper wanted to to bring them to L.A. to start recording studio time at at some big fancy uh boards and started getting around people like john lennon john lennon and uh the rolling stones and all these all these big name people back in the day and that didn't work out so well
1: no and it it seems like and and we kind of got into the details of the hell house a little bit but they had you know it was basically just them and music as opposed to when they uh as they got more famous and they moved out to LA to do their album they had a lot more distractions they had a lot more sure you know a lot more Plenty. things that took away from mm-hmm. the music and I, I feel like at least at the end of the day that's what and they, they have, always wanted to be it was just the music yeah
0: yeah that's a good point and they didn't have mushrooms <laughs> yeah <laughs> they,
1: you want to that yeah one? they have uh,
0: they have a quick uh there was a cow pasture near, near the hell house and and uh natural mushrooms psychedelic mushrooms would uh, grow uh, via manure, and what they would do uh, Gary said is they would wake up every morning they would they would brainstorm about what they if anybody had any ideas for a song and then they would go and they would eat these mushrooms and then they would start playing so most of their songs came from them being uh, high on mushrooms and just playing music and again that's like Nathan's whole thing of uh they just wanted to play music. Yeah. They they became popular because they wanted to play music. They didn't want to become popular and then play music. Yeah,
1: yeah. They, they weren't using their music as a means to get famous. They were just expressing their own music, how they felt with music. And, yeah, exactly. And, uh, it, it just, and because they were doing that is what resonated with people a lot.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's why everyone loved them so much. Like Ronnie said, he was like, we're just making it super simple for everyone to relate to. Yeah. and at some point it's like all these bands try to get so complex with their lyrics and try to make it so deep and meaningful which is, which is great I'm not knocking that but at the same time Leonard Skinner was making these songs that were down to earth people and they were just making songs for, for, the, for the southern people that this type of music hadn't really made a name for itself like the right. southern rock blues right. jazz almost type of music had not uh, become popular and people in Europe
1: freaking loved it. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they They were treating them like the freaking Beatles <laughs> out there. They were like, what is this whole... And they were obsessed not only with their music, but just with their lifestyle in general, I think. You know, they, they had advertised the fact that, you know, these were the... their Southern rockers. They were the hillbillies. They were all this yeah. stuff. And it really was a, a show for, you know, these... They were huge in Europe, and it was more for the show. But I think... One of the things that was interesting that you know we talked about their humble beginnings, but then the podcast or the documentary made a point of And the podcast. And the podcast. We're making good points making here too. Good, <laughs> we're making great points. <laughs> better points than the documentary, <laughs> if I say so myself. But the documentary had kinda of talked about how when they went to Los Angeles, they lost that a little bit. And yeah. you know, I don't want to say one album were better than the other, but commercially, the albums that they created in Los Angeles and the songs yeah. that they created didn't do as well mm-hmm. as when the, the ones uh, at the, the and, Hell House. And Steven uh,
0: Kijak did a really good job of uh, portraying the documentary, uh, just sort of the mood of the documentary. Mm-hmm. When they uh, were like recording in the Hell House, there was like super upbeat music, and it was like a super exciting yeah. uh, type of mood and cinematography, and it was super amazing. And then they went to L.A., and the mood kind of dimmed a little bit. They started showing he started showing less videos it was more just like pictures of them partying and going crazy and and sleeping and being a little bit melancholy and sad Uh, and so I think he did an incredible job of being able to to kind of bring this whole uh, amazing hell house when it was the most simple time to where it was not so fun when you were in
1: L.A which is right. almost contradicting itself which yeah, is yeah. who Leonard
0: and Skinner was and, and it
1: was um, you know I, I, one thing I loved is that you know so they get this reputation and they go to LA and they kind of the band starts to get a little bit of turmoil and then they come back to their roots and uh they had uh you know, tell the, the interview story about how um yeah well, about
0: the, the bigger boom so since uh they didn't have any they didn't have any footage of unfortunately of ronnie uh giving interviews but uh an in interview with gary and ronnie uh the lady said well, how that you have all this money like how has your lifestyle changed and ronnie said oh you know well it hasn't still get drunk with the boys still getting a lot of fights I guess all of that really has changed because I have a bigger boat. Yeah. And,
1: I mean, that's that's that was them. They didn't care right. how and, much and, money they had. No, no, and, and it was, you know, once they left Los Angeles, they kind of got back to that, which I think it helped them a lot. Yeah.
0: So I figured uh, we'd take a break, and I'll just rattle off a quick fun fact here about Leonard Skinner. Um. Give me back my bullets was the song was a reference to Rolling Stone magazine's rating system, uh, and Leonard Skinner had to stop playing it live because fans were throwing real bullets on stage. So they were like, "No, no, must stop." So another great little thing about Leonard. And we're back. The last few tours they had, I think, the last two tours they had. Uh, they were proposing an idea to put the Confederate flag up uh, behind them, and at the time, it was just a symbol of the South, uh, and there wasn't a huge uh, debate whether it was uh, symbolizing racism or any of this. It was just who the South was. It was just like another state flag. Yeah. Uh, so they so they did they did put that flag behind them in their last two I think two uh, major tours. Um. Which is crazy because the political relevance of it now today is alarming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and the the other, so they had one controversy with that. The other controversy they had was with actually, of all things, gun control. Yeah. They had talked about, um, you know, when they, just given who their band was and what their, their sound looked like and what they looked like, um, a lot of people would assume that they were anti gun control. You know, they're all about guns, but they were actually the opposite. They were, very outspoken against, uh, uh, I guess, guns. And they yeah. said they never wanted to own any. And some of their lyrics in Sweet Home Alabama were uh, talking about uh, gun control.
0: And specifically, not only gun control, but really they were almost uh, bashing the governor of Alabama. Uh, in one of the lines in Sweet Home Alabama, uh, we don't like the governor, boo, boo, boo. Uh, but at the time, people thought it was they were like almost promoting him and kind of rallying the the governor around that um, because they basically stereotyped them into thinking that that's how they would be. Exactly, and it's it's crazy that even back in the day, these bands and artists and, and, and groups of uh, musical geniuses were taking shots at. Politicians,
1: and it, it is one of those things where you, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, you know, we had the gun control, of the Confederate flag, getting angry at politicians. It's one of those things where when we were watching it, it yeah. was kind of like you could just time travel them into 2018, and 2019.
0: I, you can literally pick about, you can pick 10 or 15 songs, yeah, maybe off the top of your head, and I guarantee you, some of them is gonna name something about guns and something about yeah. politicians and something, I not say politicians, but maybe, I mean, even Trump, maybe. And yeah. and just musicians trying to speak on the on this platform that they have. Yeah. And um, I don't know if Leonard Skinner was one of the first ones to do it. I can't really speak on behalf of everybody before Landon Skinner. Yeah. But I know that what they were trying to do was what everybody thought that they were doing. Right.
1: Right. And, and, that, and that was, you know, back to the Theme of defiance there about how they you know they were sticking up for what they believed in, but it, it was just kind of jarring to me how similar what they were campaigning against or the, the issues that they faced then forty years later are the same issues we're talking. about. Yeah, it, it,
0: it was it was wild watching it. Uh, the last probably twenty minutes of the documentary were completely relevant to what was happening today, yeah. and literally in fifty years nothing has changed. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. People it, are still. People are still bashing each other uh, for political views and uh, uh, not thinking that these celebrities and uh, people of, of their stature have a platform and, and right. can speak intelligently on it. But there are some pretty cool parts uh, that Ronnie was talking about gun control and how it, it doesn't make sense that uh, people should all yeah. have guns. Yeah. Um, but that leads into the... Uh, the the unfortunate but the the knowing uh, plane crash
1: yeah yeah they had uh, yeah it it was part of their last tour Uh, they well the plane itself wasn't pretty operable to fly correct it was uh, probably
0: in worse shape than a lot of these paper airplanes you guys make in class (laughs) Um, and it was known Uh, it was was very well known that this plane wasn't in, in, in good shape And Ronnie had uh, quite the quote. It just uh, meshes perfectly with this whole defiance. I hate saying the word defiance so much. But (laughs) (laughs) uh, they. Ronnie said, uh, Gary was quoted in this uh, this little segment where he goes, Ronnie looked at everybody in the band and and he said, either you guys get on this plane and we go to this
1: next concert or you find your own way there. Yeah. And and yeah, it's just perfect because it's, you know, Ronnie being the alpha and he's telling them what to do and that's how the band started and unfortunately that's how the band ended
0: yeah uh,
1: and it was true it's true to form
0: it is and unfortunately maybe fortunately there was no conspiracy theories brought up no there wasn't any but if anybody finds any please send them <laughs> to our email uh, bookclubformillennials at gmail.com <laughs> I would love to see any conspiracy theories anybody has because uh, I did have a couple of, uh, little quotes within their uh, songs that didn't necessarily uh, would bode well with the government. They had one in Sweet Alabama where it was like, uh, "Watergate
1: does not bother us," which is kind of funny. Some people think. Uh, <laughs> some people think the government didn't like them but yeah. So they had, you know, they talked about, uh, yeah, kind of how it, it ended. But then they had no. You had caught of an idea that, that really struck you about uh, Ronnie as the as the plane was going down.
0: Yeah, so, uh, Artemis Pyle, the last drummer, uh, and him and Gary had both survived the plane crash. Uh, they were sitting, Ronnie was asleep and Ronnie, uh, as the plane was going down, Ronnie had walked by them and, and they, they swear on this, both of them do, it's the same story. Uh, they both, Ronnie had walked by them and gave them this very, as they describe it, uh, eerie ghost-like smile. As the plane was going down, and it was, it's, it's pretty crazy to think about. It. it seems like Ronnie almost knew that it was going to happen, and he was like, "Hey, we had our run. This is probably the end." And and the way that they, the way that the, the, those two told the story of his half smile, really stuck with with me, and, and just Ronnie as as a character. Yeah, I think it
1: really adds to the kind of the. You know, I think for a lot a lot of times, you know, when people. You know, die young or they died tragically like this it's they almost have an allure about them you know right. they kind of have a uh, an aura a, a mystery not only you know about them themselves but like about what they could have been and how it would have happened and I think that just kind of you hear all these stories about Ronnie about how you know they said earlier that he smelled of death whenever they walked right. by him and that he he seemed to be all knowing and he had these eerie smiles and so I think it just kind of adds to the adds to the the Aura, uh, that was him right this last
0: break i will just give us a, give ourselves a quick shout out uh, self-promo action uh follow us on twitter on instagram we will be uh throwing out little facts about the upcoming documentary so you have a little bit of knowledge uh coming into it uh shoot us an email at book club For millennials at gmail.com if you would like to hear something or have have any special requests our requests will be prioritized accordingly enjoy thanks again back to the pod to wrap this all up thank you for listening this long god bless you and your family (laughs) and your kin congratulations (laughs) made it this far uh it's a couple of recurring segments we what we wanted to to bring into every podcast um Twitter score. So what the Twitter score is, Nathan, is it is a score out of seven days of the week. Uh, so uh, one through seven. And how many given at their at their peak touring performance, right? Mm-hmm. So they are in tour, full swing of things. They're playing Freebird. They're going out on the Rolling Stone Tongue. They're getting – they're pooping in shoes. Yeah. They're doing yeah. it all. <laughs> How many days of the week would they be trending on Twitter? How many days of the week would they be trending on Twitter? Would Leonard Skinner or something that they did hmm.
1: be trending on Twitter? Oh, man. I feel like – that's a good question. I feel like if we brought Twitter to the 70s, it would be – I feel like they'd be tweeted about probably three to four times a week, I would say. Three to four times a week. Three to four times a week. What are you going with? I'm going like five
0: or oh, six. six. I imagine them having. I imagine them having three con, three three shows a week. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, one of those trending is going to be during the concert. One of those trending is going to be uh, at a hotel party or at a party somewhere. Uh-huh. And the other one is going to be simply another
1: one of those parties. Just them trash in their hotel room.
0: And it's and that's going to be, all the time.
1: And I feel like it too, it, it, this is one of the differences between a band like them and a bands like today where you know if any of the bands today did something remotely like what they were doing in the 70s it would you know people would have it on their cell phones it'd be blowing up and everything would be uh, everything would be captured on film and it'd be tweeted out before the party
0: was even done and you know? thank god it wasn't because I, I really enjoy the mystery <laughs> and like you were talking about this whole aura of of mysteriousness yeah. of Leonard Skinner of Ronnie Van Zandt and i just like leaving it up to your imagination right, like what right. were they doing like Make it up. You guys yeah. are all creative. Um, we're going to do a lot of very millennial thing. Uh, how many Instagram followers would the band Leonard Skinner have, and how many uh, would Ronnie Van Zant have?
1: Ooh, ooh, that's a good one. I think uh, I feel like Ronnie Van Zant would be would have more Twitter followers than the band page itself. Instagram followers? Instagram, Instagram followers yeah, in the band. I agree. So I I feel like I feel like he'd be one of those like Adam Levine versus Maroon Five things nice. where or like a everyone, Justin Timberlake. Yeah, and uh, and, and whatever his band yeah and Sing, nice. <laughs> you proved my point exactly that about that. <laughs> Um Yeah, I feel like he would have more. I would go That's nice. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah, just because he was you know he's the face I'm of the band. I'm guessing he's club.
0: gonna have thirteen million and the band has wow. The band has about a, a 10, 9 or
1: nine. About 10. I, I'm going to go a little under you. I'm going to go – he's got 10. band's got about six. Either way, they're in the millions. They, they got the blue they're check the mark. They, they, oh, they got the blue check mark. They definitely got the blue check mark. Lasting impacts. Was there any loose ends? Loose ends that they had. Uh, one loose end. Uh, I don't even know oh, if you geez. would call this a loose end that they would have. But one thing that just blew my mind that's still happening today. So they had – or was this planted? We'll, we'll find out. But in the documentary, they first of all had a Leonard Skinner plane crash historian that whose apparently official job was just to monitor the 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 site. That was legitimately his title. His title was Leonard Skinner plane crash historian. Mm -hmm. Then they were looking around the where the plane went down, and like he was like digging in the dirt and was like, "Oh yeah, here's part of the plane." And he pulled up a rusted piece of metal from the dirt. Has no one looked at this in like forty years? Like, you think that'd be, like, a historic landmark? I think it's something... I agree
0: with you, and the title is hilarious, but I think that it's almost a place where you don't necessarily go and just start looking for things. I would. Unless you're that guy. I feel like if you Clearly go... Clearly he hasn't done a I, I feel like <laughs> if you... If somebody from the outside, like us, were to go down yeah. there, and I think there would just be this very eerie feeling oh, yeah. of, like kind of a spookiness like yeah. what is actually happening kind of thing uh, so that's why I think that partly could be true but again it is a little bit odd you have to see it for yourself Listen, if that
1: happened in my backyard I'd be digging stuff up finding everything
0: Right. and my only loose end is um, that I think their impact would be completely relevant to today So I think if you put them into today, everybody would still love them. Everybody will always love Leonard Skinner. Everybody will always know Freebird. Everybody will always know Uh Sweet Home Alabama. Um, And I think that they'll go down in history as one of the greatest rock bands of all time, even though they only really had five or six studio albums Mm -hmm. as a whole before the plane crash, which is pretty insane to think about. Right. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Mm Mm-hmm. If you have any conspiracy theories. Let us know. Or want to argue with us about anything because you watch Follow it, us on social media. Yes. We look forward to all of your nice rational arguments from the <laughs> internet. <laughs> because everything is always rational. <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: Nice and calm.
0: All right, guys. We'll see you next week where we will be watching Icarus, uh, the documentary about the Russian doping scandal. Ooh. Yes. Very oh, interesting. You're not going to want to miss that. Lance Armstrong and stuff. Ooh. Maybe not. All right. Bye. And to close this off, thank you again so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you got something out of it. Uh, If not, come back next week. We'll have better sound, uh, better quality, uh, better jokes, everything. Uh, But to send us off, here is Leonard Skinner with Tuesdays Gone. Tune in next week for Icarus.